This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Victorian state elections this Saturday. Throughout the campaign, the Andrews government's pitched the voters a choice between privatisation and public ownership. A big promise is to revive the publicly owned State Electricity Commission, or the SEC. In Latrobe Valley, the heart of coal country in the state, Premier Daniel Andrews says the policy will help communities bounce back after the closure of many coal-fired power stations in recent years, with thousands of secure jobs and renewables linked to the revival of the SEC. What do voters think? Oliver Gordon travelled to Morwell in Latrobe Valley to find out. There it is. The eight chimney stacks of the Hazelwood coal-fired power station towered over the Latrobe Valley for more than 50 years. When they were demolished two years ago, Morwell resident Wendy Farmer was watching. Watching them go down was a end of history of coal as we knew it, but also a rebirth of what comes next. Victoria's Latrobe Valley provided most of the state's power for decades. In the 60s, 70s and 80s, most of its coal workers worked for the publicly owned State Electricity Commission, but it was privatised in the 90s. Wendy says the region's been in decline ever since. We saw long-term unemployment, so people that had actually come out of the power station expecting to get more work, as they were promised, but not working again. And the mental health issues that really followed that privatisation. It became a festering sore that never healed in the valley. AGL has recently announced the Loyang A power station will close early. It'll be the third coal-fired power station to pull out of the region before its scheduled end date. It's in this context that the Victorian Labor Party has launched its plan to bring back the State Electricity Commission. Victorians will own their own energy again and it'll be renewable. Power prices will come down and good secure jobs created. With the election fast approaching, ads like these ring around Morwell's shopping centres on commercial radio. The coalition won the seat of Morwell from Labor in 2006, with then Nationals candidate Russell North. Mr North had a messy split from the coalition in 2018 and became an independent, but he's retiring now and Labor senses an opportunity to win the seat back. It's trying to appeal to people like Nick Strammon, an underemployed worker who moves between short-term contracts. You know, they can just say to you tomorrow, it's, it's finished. He's sceptical of governments over-promising and under-delivering. I understand we're trying to go greener in this environment, but uh, we've got to think the future also for the, for the younger generation to come. And I can't see anything happening. And you don't think the SEC being resurrected is the answer to that? Just trying to just uh, throw money at one thing, thinking that you fix the problem, is not, not going to fix everything. Community advocate Wendy Farmer is a swinging voter, but she sees a renewables-focused SEC as a lifeline for the region and says that's too good to pass up. I haven't seen anything as strong or as good for Latrobe Valley. Let's make sure we know what they stand for before we vote for them. Because if they stand for the coal or the gas we're going to be bypassed and we're going to wonder what happened in 50 years. That's community advocate Wendy Farmer ending that report by Oliver Gordon. Staying on the election for a moment, in the seat of Richmond and Melbourne's inner north, Labor's backed a new candidate, Lauren O'Dwyer, who places her yorta yorta identity at the centre of her campaign. 
But after concerns were raised among the Indigenous community about her claimed identity, one of her relatives have spoken out, telling the ABC the family has no Indigenous heritage. Dana Moore says more. Labor candidate Lauren O'Dwyer has broad appeal in the battleground seat of Richmond in Melbourne's inner north. I'm Lauren O'Dwyer, Labor for Richmond. I'm a lesbian single mum, a renter, director in the arts, footy coach and a proud Yorta Yorta woman. But questions are swirling around her claim to Indigenous heritage. Indigenous people, including many Yorta Yorta community members, believe Lauren O'Dwyer isn't correct in claiming to be part of the Northern Victorian mob. The ABC understands she claims her Indigenous ancestry is through her great-grandfather, Graham Berry. But Mr Berry's daughter, Joan Keel, has spoken with the ABC and says he was not Indigenous. I was really surprised when I read that on Facebook that she was... uh Oh, what, how did she put it? You were a you um, proud Yorta Yorta woman. And I thought, ooh, I don't think that's right. Well, I don't see how she can be because my father was not an Aboriginal. Ms O'Dwyer says she has a confirmation of Aboriginality certificate signed by the Nyonda Aboriginal Corporation, a community-controlled health service in Echuca. The ABC has not been able to verify that claim. Monica Morgan, Chief Executive of the Yorta Yorta Aboriginal Corporation, says Ms O'Dwyer has not made contact with the organisation and has failed to follow cultural protocols. She cannot say she's Yorta Yorta until she actually comes to the Yorta Yorta. It's not something where you can just self-identify because you live on the country or you participate or you just found out. It's really about talking to those en- uh, those elders. Ms Morgan says there is currently no link between either Lauren O'Dwyer or her great-grandfather, Graham Berry, and the Yorta Yorta Nation. I've looked at her genealogy and we and there is nobody of, uh, of uh, Berry family group within the Yorta Yorta genealogical line. Joan Keel says she hasn't been able to get in contact with Lauren O'Dwyer or other close family members, and she's not sure why they believe they're Indigenous. I can't understand it. I really don't. Whether or not she's doing it to try and get the Indigenous vote, I have no idea. It's a jolly awkward time, to be quite honest. Lauren O'Dwyer has refused multiple requests for an interview, but in a statement says she discovered her Aboriginal identity as a teenager and had it confirmed in her 20s when her mother obtained a certificate of Aboriginality from local Achuka elders with a long connection to the family. Since then, she says she spent many years building connection to community. Monica Morgan questions those claims. Leadership within a First Nations uh, is not through a ballot box. Um, it's through your genealogical makeup. Your strength and your power and your passion comes from that identity. And it's more than just getting a piece of paper. Monica Morgan, the Chief Executive of the Yorta Yorta Aboriginal Corporation, ending that report by Dana Morse and Indigenous Affairs reporter Jetta Costa. The UN's climate summit, known as COP27, has ended in Egypt. After 30 years of arguing for it, there's finally been agreement on setting up a loss and damage fund for developing countries. How it will work is still being figured out. As Alexandra Humphreys reports, the event didn't make any significant new strides towards curbing emissions. 
After tense negotiations, COP27 secured an historic agreement, a fund to help developing countries cope with climate change, recognising that while they've done little to cause the crisis, they're burdened with the enormous cost of the damage. Professor Jacqueline Peel is the Director of Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne. It's a really important new fund, a new source of money um, that uh, recognises the need for um, uh, meeting the costs of climate disasters which are affecting um, vulnerable developing countries in particular. So it's sort of been 30 years in the making that uh, developing countries have been calling for, for this kind of resource to be part of the climate um, regime. Professor Peel says the loss and damage fund nearly didn't make it onto the agenda and there are still significant details to work through. Essentially what's been established is a fund but it's an empty bucket at the moment. doesn't have money in it, doesn't have rules um, and those uh, under the decision that was agreed still need to be worked out and presented to the next COP. Despite reaching a deal on the fund, COP27 didn't manage to tighten language on curbing emissions. Many experts and world leaders have raised concerns about the lack of progress to address fossil fuels, and there are concerns the agreement leaves open a loophole for gas in a backward step. There's not anything really in the Sharm el-Sheikh um, plan of implementation and decisions that will help to bring down the emissions that, that cause climate damage in the first place. So there's there's not a lot of movement forward from where we were in Glasgow last year. Um, a lot of the language on um, 1.5 degrees and, and the importance of maintaining that target is sort of copied and pasted over from what we had last year. And in particular, there's no further movement to try and phase down um, fossil fuel use. Overall, as another global summit draws to a close, Professor Peel says addressing climate change is a two-sided process, requiring emissions to be reduced, as well as a plan to deal with harms caused by existing emissions. On that, there's more work to be done. This agreement gives um, uh, no way forward at the moment for putting pressure on companies on countries to really up their ambition on um, uh, targets for reducing emissions um, and uh, and there's also concern that it really leaves the idea of staying within 1.5 degrees on, on life support. Professor Jacqueline Peel from the Melbourne Climate Futures ending that report by Alexandra Humphreys. A powerful special commission of inquiry into LGBT hate crimes will begin hearing evidence in New South Wales today. The state's police forces previously described gay hate crimes as a blight on history. Some, though, are already calling for a national inquiry, saying many cases in other states remain unsolved. Gavin Coote reports. At Sydney's first gay and lesbian Mardi Gras in 1978, 53 demonstrators were arrested and many more were savagely beaten by police. Gary Wotherspoon was among those at the march who've been determined to shine a light on violence towards LGBTQI Sydney-siders ever since. The first Mardi Gras 
it did sort of focus the mind on the problems we were facing. As a historian, I thought we really don't know much about our past. Up until 1984, our life, we were illegal. So we lived a very different life to our straight brothers, sisters, neighbours and friends. In 2016, New South Wales Police formally apologised for its treatment of protesters at the first Mardi Gras, but it still faces scrutiny over its response to gay hate crimes over a 40-year period. Now, that response is the focus of a special commission of inquiry in New South Wales, which we'll hear from its first witnesses today. More than 20 unsolved deaths will be examined, and Gary Wotherspoon is among those giving evidence. I think the Commission will certainly unearth a lot of information, hopefully from within the police force and from the police records. I think it has changed. I mean, in 1978, they were laying into us with their batons. Now they want to march in the Mardi Gras parade with us. The world has changed a little, but we really need to know why this was tolerated, encouraged for so long, for 50, 60 years, and what has been done to make sure this sort of thing never occurs again, not only to the gay community, but also to other minority cultures. Nicola Stewart is a Sydney lawyer who led calls for an inquiry and has acted for victims of gay hate crimes. This is about truth and justice for our community. There are so many hurting families and friends, um, as well as surviving victims of hate crimes, who have desperately wanted a government to recognise what they've been through. The first public hearing is expected to focus on the LGBTQI community's relationship with New South Wales Police and the violence perpetrated on community members. And while he's happy to see hearings getting underway in New South Wales, Nicola Stewart says it's time for a national inquiry into gay hate crimes. Unfortunately, it's not just Sydney. You know, we need to look at South Australia. We've got to look at Victoria. There were some awful, awful crimes committed against the members of the LGBT community in our three states. It's got a bigger issue and I think the community deserves truth and justice. A final report from the inquiry is due by mid-next year. Gavin Coote. It's six months since the Albanese government was elected and since then it's announced a wide review and new leadership for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. But disability advocates and participants are angry and distressed about persisting questions about the scheme's viability and cost blowouts. They argue the NDIS is an investment in people with disability and their contributions to society are being overlooked. National Disability Affairs reporter Elizabeth Wright has more. Then we're going to go kicking. Off you go. Legs up and kicking. Fast kick for the chipper. In Sydney South, Learn to Swim instructor Janelle Armstrong is teaching a class of four to six-year-olds. She loves the freedom she feels in the water and in her teens won gold for Australia in the pool. You know, swimming opened up so many doors for me with the Paralympics. I'm passionate about, you know, teaching children um, those life skills that they need in the, in the water. Born with spina bifida, the 41-year-old uses a wheelchair which she bought second-hand on Gumtree. When she first applied for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, she was knocked back. So I kind of found it a little bit funny that I was disabled enough to not... Um, it's disabled enough to actually qualify for the Paralympics, but not disabled enough to qualify for any assistance um, on the NDIS. With the help of the Spina Bifida Clinic at the Prince of Wales Hospital, Janelle applied again to the NDIS this year and was successful. She'll soon have a new wheelchair. The longer I can stay mobile, 
Um, the more I can work, the more I can be a contributing person in society. Two of her children are also NDIS participants. The family receives eight hours assistance from support workers a week. Janelle is concerned the scheme's benefits have been forgotten in commentary about the value of the scheme. Look, I'm a taxpayer too. I've worked, I always have, I always want to work. This NDIS funding actually allows us to do that. Uh, which means that in turn we can give back to the community. More than half a million Australians are on the NDIS and 23% of working age participants reported they were in paid employment. Helen Dickinson, a Professor of Public Service Research from the University of New South Wales, says it was designed as an investment in those with disability. The conversation is very one-sided at the moment. We keep talking just about the funding that goes into the scheme and not the benefits that are realised through that. Minister for the NDIS, Bill Shorten, acknowledges the cost of the scheme is growing faster than expected, but says the national conversation is only looking at half the picture. The problems in the scheme are not that the people with disabilities. And in fact, when I look at some of the uh, benefits of the scheme, we need to be talking that up a lot more. And we've got to change that narrative to investment, that it is making a difference. Janelle Armstrong says the NDIS has been life-changing. It's certainly not welfare. It's certainly not, you know, allowing us to live the high life. It is, it's just giving us a level playing field with everybody. NDIS participant Janelle Armstrong ending that report from Elizabeth Wright. This year's Soccer World Cup, which has been mired in controversy since it was awarded to Qatar 12 years ago, has finally kicked off. This morning in the tournament opener, Ecuador beat the host nation 2-0. As national sport reporter David Mark reports from Qatar, the lead-up to the match was overshadowed by a bizarre speech given by the president of FIFA, the sports world governing body. And there's the opening goal. And the World Cup is off and running. A World Cup that was ridiculed amid allegations of FIFA corruption 12 years ago has got off to the worst possible start for Qatar. It's so sad we don't expect from uh, Qatar like this. We are unhappy. I feel upset (laughs) because I support Qatar. Disappointed. It was a good game. We are going to try in the next game. The 2-0 loss comes just one day after a rambling tirade delivered by FIFA's president, Gianni Infantino. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Those remarks point to the criticism aimed at Qatar over its anti-homosexuality laws and treatment of foreign workers, some of whom have died or suffered injuries working in withering conditions under a form of indentured labour. The country was forced to reform its labour laws under international pressure, but advocates around the world, including Australia's own Socceroos, say they have much more work to do. This must include establishing a migrant resource centre, effective remedy for those who have been denied their rights, and the decriminalisation of all same-sex relationships. But that external criticism isn't mirrored inside the country. Of the country's 3 million people, close to 90% are foreign nationals, mostly in professional jobs. They say the World Cup has brought huge benefits to the country in terms of jobs and new infrastructure. I believe it's because of this uh, World Cup, uh, Qatar has transformed very much and uh, it, it was an amazing transformation for Qatar. Many of those foreign nationals reject the criticism of the country. They should come and visit and really see uh, the reality by their eyes. 
they should see what Qatar has done for the world, how they accept other nationalities. When you see everyone happy, smiles on all the faces, everyone singing without any limitation, there's no limits when you're happy. The opening ceremony was a pastiche featuring Qatar's Bedouin past and Arab culture before moving on to celebrate football and the teams participating in this World Cup. The Socceroos play their first match of the tournament against France on Wednesday morning, Australian time. This is David Mark in Doha for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Since billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk took over Twitter, he's been inflicting a special type of chaos, sacking half the workforce and alienating advertisers. Today, senior writer at tech website The Verge, Elizabeth Lopato, on the richest man in the world's dreams for the site and whether he can pull them off. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.